Hi everyone, I'm Sarah and this is How To Be Good, the podcast that explores what it means to be a good person in today's world. Today I'm talking with Anishinaabe, Melanie Goodchild. We are taught that we are not the center of the universe. We do not have a domain, but we are also not subordinate. And so we're not above nature or below nature. We're a part of nature. Mulaney is Moose Clan from Bijatong Nishnabeg and Garden River First Nations in northwestern Ontario. Now, I'm using her English name and English pronunciations here, but we start the interview with Mulaney introducing herself in Inishnabowen, so you can hear more about where she's from in the language of her ancestors. That's greetings to you, all of my relations. That's to the folks who are listening and, and to you. Mulaney is a Senior Indigenous Research Fellow and Associate at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. Currently studying for her PhD in Social and Ecological Sustainability, she is the founder of the Turtle Island Institute, an Indigenous social innovation think-and-do tank, a teaching lodge that is working to enable transformative change. As a spirit being on a human journey, we are gifted all kinds of teachings and helpers. In her work, Mulaney weaves together her unique perspectives of Indigenous knowledge with systems thinking, complexity theory and social innovation. She believes in the teaching methods of her ancestors in coming to know on the land, and so she supports initiatives that seek to connect people to ceremony, story, art, language and the land. Connect to nature for yourself, because all of this good work in the world, that's outer work, begins with an inner work. Mulaney is an incredible person with such a wealth of knowledge, coupled with a real depth of kindness and compassion. I really hope you enjoy the wisdom she shares with us in this conversation. It is my complete honour to introduce you all to Mulaney Goodchild. That's greetings to you, all of my relations. That's to the folks who are listening and, and to you. The language I'm about to speak is Anishinaabemowin, which is the language of my ancestors. And I will do a, a traditional greeting of my spirit name, clan, and, and where I'm from and where I am right now. So, that's thank you for listening. Those are my names as I'm known in the spirit world in Ojibwe. Mulaney Goodchild, that's what I'm known in English, Mulaney, named after my dad, Delaney. My late father and my mother, Melinda, they halved it up. It spelled it like Melanie, and it, but it's pronounced Mulaney. I tell that story because sometimes folks can't remember uh, why it's, it's pronounced differently. And those are the two First Nations I'm from in northwestern Ontario. And I'm here at my home in Crystal Beach, which is just south of Niagara Falls, Ontario. So this is traditional Haudenosaunee Confederacy and Three Fires Confederacy territory. The Three Fires include the Potawatomi, the Anishinaabe, and the Odawa. So I'm a visitor to this territory, but my ancestors are from this whole area. And Niagara Falls is a very sacred place for us. So I always acknowledge uh, the Animaki, the thundering waters. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Mulaney. And maybe we just start with that first big question of what does it mean to be a good person according to Indigenous teachings? Well, Anishinaabe Kweanda. So I'm Anishinaabe and, and speak only for, for my nation. Uh, but there's lots of similarities with other Indigenous peoples in terms of our, our teachings and 
cosmology. So for us, we say mino bimatsuin. Mino means good or great or deep, and bimatsuin means life. And so it's one of our foundational teachings that we are given. And, it, you know, it's part of our natural law. So as a spirit being on a human journey, we are gifted all kinds of teachings and helpers. One of those teachings is the teaching of Mino Bamatisawin, to pursue that. That means to, to live your life uh, fully as an Anishinaabe and to be in balance. So we have a, a medicine wheel teaching. And in that teaching of the medicine wheel, there's balance. And so you can think of a circle with an X through it, there's four quadrants, and that's spiritual, mental, physical, emotional. So even our concept of wellness is different. And in the biomedical model, in a lot of Western teachings, and uh, sort of the approach of doctors, for example, and physicians, you know, it's the absence of disease, and then you are healthy. For us, it's actually the presence of balance. I mean, it's interesting when I think about good, because in Western thinking, that's often a binary. You know, there's good, there's bad, there's black and white. And in Anishinaabe, Dick and Doswin, which is our original ways of knowing, we don't really have that binary thinking in that, in that way, but we do have concepts of good. And when we say Mino Bamatsuin, that means the good life. Like thinking about Mino, because it has multiple meanings, good, great, deep. And the Mino Bamatsuin, good life, is about something that you pursue. And so you're taught that through a number of ceremonies, how you can access that and live your life as a commitment to Mino Bamatsuin. And how about the concept of being a bad person? Are there certain actions or behaviors that would be pulled out as being seen as bad? Oh, yeah, for sure. There, there are concepts of behavior that violates protocols, for example, behavior that would harm somebody else, behavior that doesn't represent the values we have of sharing. Uh, you know, we survive for thousands of years by sharing. The, the concept of greed, for example, would have put someone's life at risk. Now people can be greedy and, you know, the people who have everything and the people who have nothing. What are the consequences for that? Um, in our communities, the consequences were often that you were ostracized. And so you were told to go to the edge of the woods and live there and not in the village. And that was really hard because that, that means you lost access to your social life, your community life. Now, we, I mean, how would you do that in the modern day? You know, go live, <laughs> go live over there, pointing at a tree over there. But that is because we were so communal. We didn't really have the deep commitment to individualism and individuality that modern and Western societies have. It was very communal and your survival depended on that. So you shared if you were hunting and fishing, collecting berries. You shared that with elders who couldn't do that anymore. You really looked after, you really looked after people. And if you didn't, I think you might consider that like bad. But we didn't really have this concept of good and evil. We also had tricksters. And so in my culture, Nana Bojo was a trickster. Sometimes they refer to them as windigos. And so these were, you know, um, in our legends, those adzuken, those stories, we, we have all kinds of stories. Like storytelling is also how we transmit knowledge, uh, part of that oral culture. So in the winter, you would sit around and listen to stories by, by the fire because that was the seasonal flow of things. And so a lot of our communities and different nations have midwinter ceremonies. 
And when you listen to those stories and you hear them your whole life about how Nana Bojo did this, and then there was a consequence for it, that's how those those types of values were imparted and continue to be. I, I talk in the, like I'm talking in the past. It's not because we only existed in the past. Um, some people do talk and write about us like that. I'm just saying that that is like what was a part of your daily life before contact when you were living close to the land and seasonal, you know, now uh, we're as a nest in, in globalization as, as any other community, you know, driving cars, living in houses. And what we're trying to do is reawaken those traditional values and learn from them. Like we go back and look at how did we impart knowledge? And then I bring that into my work so that I'm not imparting knowledge only in the ways that Western society has sanctioned for, for many years, not only sanctioned, but universalized, you know, it's very hegemonic. Like you have to read it in a book in English and text, or it's not valid knowledge and publish it in a peer reviewed journal, for example. Uh, I think all of that, you know, it's about balance. It's not really about let's get rid of all the journals. No, but it's also, you might learn your most profound teachings from hearing the teachings on a birch bark school. And the values that are imparted by these stories, what would some examples of those values be? Always situational. And, you know, so I mentioned respect, caring, sharing, humility, honesty, truth, love. Those are often presented as uh, grandmother or grandfather teachings. But there's also the original instructions, which are taught to you through the creation story. We are taught that we are not the center of the universe. We do not have a domain. But we are also not subordinate. And so we're not above nature or below nature. We're a part of nature. We're part of a net, a web of life. We understood the interconnected web of life for thousands of years. And, and, and that taught you things like sustainability, right, and, and sharing. So uh, those concepts of uh, those values, I think, are sometimes antidotes to what we're socialized to be like. And when I say we, like all of humanity, you know, be, be greedy, own your stuff, collect more stuff. All of those things are uh, part of our socialization. But if we were sharing everything we ate for dinner tonight with somebody who was hungry, would that address hunger? So, you know, that's what I do is try to think about some of those core values. And uh, I had the opportunity the other day to sit in conversation with Oren Lyons. And he's uh, 91 years old. He's a leader and a faith keeper of the wolf clan of the Onondaga Nation in the Longhouse. And that's what he talked about. He talked to me and some colleagues about instruction. That's what he called it. People these days are not given instruction in these original teachings and these values. And they need that. You're not just, you can't just assume someone's going to know they should be respectful and caring. Um, you know, maybe your temperament and personality is such, uh, but the more that you're, you see that model, the more you understand how to enact compassion or love. I mean, the elders talk about probably love more than anything. And then they'll talk about respect and humility. And it's all interconnected, but they really do prioritize coming from a place of love towards mother earth towards all the other beings and towards each other they share that with us quite a bit and when it comes to the teaching of those values you've mentioned ceremony and stories are there any other kind of formal structures that are set up now to ensure the communication of these teachings through the community and also through to new generations 
you know, there's some really great work actually by a scholar named uh, Gregory Cajete, who's a Pueblo scholar, and he talks about the seven stages of you know, Indian education. He refers to pre-contact Indigenous peoples. There was a, a whole system, and it did not involve schools or classrooms or, for many of us, written texts. We're primarily an oral culture, so our teachings and values are encoded in songs, in ceremonies, in our language. Our language comes from the land. It's very um, verb-based, we say, as opposed to noun-based. It's actually very process-oriented. I just heard recently an elder say that. It's not really even verbs because the word verb is a noun, he said. Uh, That was Dr. Leroy Little Bear. And so the, the teachings come from a repetition of a lot of different what we call adzukin, which are traditional sacred legends or teachings. There's also your personal stories, debajimawim. And so you there's there's protocols around sacred stories and teachings. And so there's only sometimes a certain time of year or a certain place or certain people who have, you know, the right to share those adzukin, those, those sacred stories and teachings. But we have a, a creation story. Uh, or an origination story of how we came to be here on the back of a turtle, Turtle Island, which is North America, modern day North America. So there are ceremonies and teachings uh, throughout your life cycles. And some of those are passages, you know, when you're going from kind of a child, perhaps into uh, coming into adulthood or adolescence, like you go on fasting, there's vision quests, there's ceremonies for women when they start their menstruation, all of those encode those teachings. And that's what I mean, that you hear it repeated, these different values and what we call natural law. You hear all of that throughout your lifetime. We did have recordings of teachings on sacred birch bark scrolls and petroglyphs. And so there are some some beautiful, those adzukin are there, uh, very spiritual teachings. But primarily you learned also through apprenticeship. So you, you go to a lot of ceremonies and you sit there and you see what the elders are doing and you can come become a, an Oshkabewis, which is a helper. And so my husband and I, for example, are, are Shkabe, we're helpers in the healing lodges and teaching lodges back home. So we spend a lot of time with elders and that's where we're able to kind of translate some of that into the, the work that we do. And do you ever have any worries when you're sharing those teachings that they'll be misunderstood or maybe even misused? Yeah, there's there's a, a bit of a concern more from the perspective of that, you know, one of our natural laws is to do no harm. And so sometimes even introducing people to metaphysical teachings, to spirituality, could be harmful when they are deeply emotionally and psychologically committed to their scientific rationality and the, the concept of Mother Earth, not as a being or as your mother, but Mother Earth as a thing to be commodified, exploited, you know, here to serve us. And so, uh, like, even if you think about mental models, like Peter Senge in the fifth discipline talks about mental models and challenging mental models is some of the toughest inner work that you can do with people. Uh, and that's sort of like the basis of my work. And so I, I worry not so much about appropriation. I mean, that's certainly a concern that things will be taken and used, uh, but even the elders have, have talked to me about not so much worrying about appropriation because the knowledge requires so much depth. Like what we can share in workshops and Zoom calls is just the tip of the iceberg, really. 
there's so many profound teachings. I mean, it takes a lifetime to learn about the medicines, to learn the language, to learn so many things. And so that is a protection in some ways against, you know, the misuse. Uh, you know, we've seen people that learn a ceremony and then start to do the ceremony. Um, but the the protocols that you have to be taught, maybe you were gifted that. Maybe you do have the teachings to pick that medicine. And so I don't really judge. I don't come from like a place of judgment with people. Uh, in fact, I've taught people who are grieving, for example, to put out an ancestor plate and feed their ancestors. The ancestors know what that is, even if they don't know it, and it's not their custom and culture. And it's really helped people with grief. So we call that mushkiki medicine. And medicine means the strength from Mother Earth. That's what that literally translates. And so, because for us, it was plants, you know, plant medicine, water, food, all of that was mushkiki to help us with Anishinaabe, Mita, and wellness. To stay in balance, you access the mushkiki that helps bring you back into balance. So for me, the more I teach people, sometimes there's going to be a risk of a misquote or a misappropriation. But generally, I am sharing as much as I can share to do no harm. And so I hope people take it and run with it. And what's the relationship between intention and action when it comes to those type of situations? I guess it depends on almost depth or scale of the result of the action. So people can make mistakes and and violate protocol. But if your intention includes the violation of protocol, then you know that that has to be addressed. And and in order to do that, um, and there's protocols that are quite deep that maybe someone just learning about you know culture would not know that. And so they're not going to get uh, in trouble per se, but they're going to get taught. And so we call them teachable moments. Uh, And there's a lot of teachable moments in cross-cultural dialogue uh, where protocols are violated. And so, for example, something as what seems probably might be foreign to some people, but in our culture, when we sit in circle and we speak, we go clockwise. And so we go to the left. So I would go to my left and introduce the next person. In this territory, Haudenosaunee territory, they go to the right. And there's different teachings about that. But if I don't know that I'm in this territory and I just go to my left and there are, you know, my Mohawk relatives are there, what I do is I speak to that, right? So I, and one of the things you do is you also say, and please understand, I don't understand all of the protocols here because I'm not from here. So if I were to go to somewhere, where I don't know the culture at all. The one thing to remember about protocols is always respect. Just practice your utmost hospitality in that, in that presence, uh, wherever it is, if it's a new culture, and respect. I mean, humor also goes a long way. I mean, a lot of people, you know, we laugh a lot. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if there's... If it's if it's a, a major violation of protocol that wasn't intended, uh, then it's you know it's a teachable moment. If it was intended, then you it would have to be addressed, you know, and you might have to make amends uh, for that. But there are ceremonies to do that as well. Like the the amends are not going to be something awful. They're going to be something that probably instills within you humility. 
because uh, that's another one of our, our deep values. And if you don't have humility, you know, community members will see that. And that's a major violation of protocol. And that's probably a lack of humility leads to transgressions more than trying to hurt someone or being bad or something like that. Would you share with us maybe some of your experience of how it's been as an Indigenous woman going into a very Western education system? You're now studying for your doctorate and actually researching within that space between different forms of knowledge. But how has the journey been right from the beginning to where you are now? For me, I had done an undergraduate degree and a master's degree where I really just followed the teachings of the discipline. It was sociology. You know, these are, this is the canonical literature. This is how you do social science research. And at that point, as a scholar, I just accepted that, did what I needed to do and was granted those degrees. And when I started a PhD program, I was more mature, uh, a little more confident, really bringing forth my identity as a Anishinaabe Kwe, as an Indigenous scholar. And so when I got to my PhD program, the first couple of courses that I was in had professors that didn't quite know how to handle me. Um, I'm very respectful in, in pointing out something as simple as, wow, this reading list doesn't have any Indigenous scholars or feminist scholars. Oh, yeah, well, no, this is the canonical literature of social and ecological sustainability. Really defined by whom? As if Indigenous peoples around the world have, have nothing to say or ever had anything to say about sustainability and the survival of Mother Earth and, and all the beings that are here with us. So I had to go into ceremony. I consult a lot of elders back home. I text them, uh, email them, I Zoom with them. I look at our language and I really redefine what some of those concepts are I'm learning in the Western disciplines like ecological um, economics or resilience thinking. So I took resilience and I asked an, you know, some elders back home, well, how would we say resilience? Like in the C.S. Hollings definition, you know, the capacity of a system to absorb a shock and uh, not flip into another identity. So that, that, that's the concept of social ecological resilience in complex adaptive systems. So I, I told all of that to the elders, and they each came back to me, uh, one with uh, my cousin, Renee Mishaki, who said, I, I would say that is uh, Sibiskagad, a river flowing flexibly through the land. And then my sister, Eleanor Skeed, uh, she said, I would say that is Mama Sinjige. It's always contextual. It's a river, but it's that Mama Sinjige is the quick twists and turns of the river you know, flowing through the land. So they each came back to me with a river flowing flexibly through the land and it twists and turns. And then when they taught me that, uh, Eleanor said, are you near a river? And I said, yeah, I was actually near, right near the Nith River, um, staying in a, in a house there near uh, Waterloo, the university I go to in Ontario, the University of Waterloo. And uh, she said, well, that river is teaching you what resilience is. So you have to go down and do a ceremony and make an offering. And I did. And so in my comprehensive exam, I was writing that paper, a 10,000-word essay uh, about traditional ecological knowledge, which I was actually um, critiquing because we don't define our own knowledge as traditional ecological knowledge. We may use that term, but it's ecologists who said, hey, that's what we want to learn from Indigenous peoples. But our knowledge is very holistic. Um, you can get, quote, T-E-K in so many things. And so it's really, you know, uh, 
that concept of resilience was how I critiqued traditional ecological knowledge because you're not learning the languages if you're not on the land if you're not you know spending time with elders to fully understand this in your not just in your mind knowledge resides on the land and is revealed to you through personal experiences on the land so I went and I sat by that river and I made offerings because I needed to thank her for being a co-writer if you could think about it that way with me so that that's I think really important and for me I've had to find those spaces in university they're not granted to you and I've heard the concept of hospitality and epistemic violence and so when you come from a different cosmology and epistemology uh, to that being taught in your university program uh, you sometimes in a big battle you know and you're that gift that you're offering of a different way of knowing it's either received with hostility and, and rejected uh, as a threat to their discipline, even their identity as, you know, a, a scholar of a certain discipline, uh, or it's accepted as, wow, that's beautiful. Can I learn more? And then you teach each other. And so that's how I've found and I've wrote about it, something called relational systems thinking, where, you know, we're in the river of life together and the river itself, she's in danger now. And we need to share our ways of knowing so that we can figure out how to continue life on this planet. You mentioned writing about relational systems thinking, and I read the paper that you published um, on that topic. And it's something that really struck me is when you talk about the space that's created, when you're bringing together people from different perspectives and cultures and backgrounds and belief systems and knowledge systems, you talk about in the middle, that space being a sacred space or an ethical space. Can you just maybe explain a bit more about that and also share some of the practical realities of making that happen? Because the theory is really beautiful and sounds wonderful, but I imagine that there are a lot of challenges in actually making that happen in reality. So as a PhD student, I was encouraged to publish an academic paper, and I kind of resisted that for a while. It just seemed very colonial to me. In English, you know, text. But I started to realize, of course, as a student, I was citing all kinds of papers. And the, the more, you know, Indigenous scholars that published, the more I was citing. And so when a couple of colleagues of mine uh, who are deep systems thinkers, uh, Peter Senge and Otto Scharmer at MIT, invited me to write a paper, I thought, well, this is, this is a chance to start of it, really explore further what I was doing in systems thinking and deep systems awareness. And my uncle Dan Longboat, who's Mohawk, he said, well, if you're talking to like Western systems thinkers, you know, you make sure you talk to us, like our systems thinkers. And so I got to sit down in conversation with uh, four Haudenosaunee, Haudenosaunee, Mohawk and Tuscarora elders last year. And I was writing uh, at first two separate papers. And then I brought them together because I could hear in Peter and Otto's stories similar things to what the elders were saying, but they were saying them in a different way. So the elders were talking from a very Haudenosaunee philosophy and worldview. Peter and Otto were speaking from their own worldview uh, as individuals, as human beings, also from the scholarship. You know, they're really kind of well-known for their systems thinking approaches. And I brought them together and I was inspired by the teachings of the land here. And when we say that knowledge resides on the land, it is on the land that you are on, wherever you are. And as a visitor here, I really needed to learn about Haudenosaunee philosophy because I'm not Mohawk, I'm Ojibwe. 
they taught me about the Turo Wampum Belt of Yaswenta. And that Turo Wampum Belt was the first treaty signed between, at the time, Dutch merchants, later followed by the French and the British, and the Haudenosaunee peoples. And their leadership signed this wampum belt. And the wampum belt, uh, wampum shells are these beautiful sacred shells that come from the ocean wampum. And there's they're on a belt, like they're strung on a belt. And that belt has white in the background and two columns of purple beads. So it's white with two columns of purple beads. Those purple beads represent the Dutch merchant sailing ship and the Iroquois birch bark canoe. The treaty was of peace, friendship, and respect, of peaceful coexistence. But the real spirit of the treaty was that, you, that we would not interfere. So it's equal but differentiated. And that, that treaty was broken over time because, of course, colonization interferes. The whole agreement was that the Haudenosaunee would continue the life that they had, their distinct culture, language, lifestyle. And, and that was for, like all nations, we were all treaty-making, you know, uh, a long time ago. But many of those treaties, most of them have been broken through empire-building, land grabs, uh, you know, disenfranchisement of Indigenous peoples from their, their identity, their land, uh, residential schools. So a number of colonial and genocidal policies here in Canada and in the U.S. Was, were attempts to, to destroy our culture, I mean, to, to kill our traditional way of life, our, our original way of life, actually. And so when I wrote the, the paper, the concept of relational systems thinking is that our cosmology is relationship-based. Our whole culture is about relationships, relationships to the land, to each other, to our ancestors, and to other beings, not just the two-leggeds, but the, the winged beings, the four-leggeds, you know, the ones in the water, that we are all related in Dinawamag and Aduk means all my relations. The Lakota people say, you know, I am related to everything in the universe. So relational systems thinking for me is an approach that where one of the columns, one of the purple rows is perhaps conventional systems thinking, uh, which comes out of Western science and other things like that. <clears throat> and the other side, the, the Iroquois, you know, canoe, birch bark canoe is what we would say in Anishinaabe, Gekindasawin, or Indomawin, our original knowledge, wisdom. And that in between is what Willie Ermine, a Cree scholar, calls ethical space. My uncle Dan calls it sacred space. There's an Andean elder who calls it the third space. It's that space in between in the river that you, you, you know, you could think of it as, you know, are you on this canoe or are you on this ship? but you need to work together. So you've got to meet each other in the middle there in that ethical space and, and you're swimming, you're in the river of life together, kind of whether you like it or not, like we're one family, the two leggeds around the world. And so the river of life, as my uncle Dan says, is in danger now. So it behooves us to work together to find a way to perpetuate life on mother earth. Nishnabe, we call it uh, the eight fire prophecy, rekindling the eight fire requires that the Ashkemadizig, the new people, the new people are the ones who would pick up all of our ancestral traditions around the world. The Andean elder talks about re-indigenizing the world. You know, everybody, uh, whatever color your skin, whatever nation you're associated with, that you are indigenous to Mother Earth because you are, you would not survive without her. And so relational systems thinking is a bridge. And in practice, that bridge to bring people across the bridge to meet 
and to be able to to get into that ethical space, both not only intellectually but spiritually, you know, sometimes physically, uh, certainly emotionally, uh, we do that through a focus on healing self and systems. So the work I do recognizes that that type of mindset shift can be destabilizing, um, maybe even frightening for people, very emotional because you're letting go of assumptions. Uh, maybe they're racist assumptions, maybe they're sexist. And in order to do that, we have to build really safe containers. And so we, we show people the article, but then we also build containers and we do ceremonies and we do tea, tea. we drink tea together. It's, you know, so the the framework is a dialogic framework, but I would say in the middle is healing self and systems and cups of tea. And finally, if you could share one piece of advice as to how our listeners could go out and do one good thing today or contribute to the world positively, what would you recommend? I would say wherever anyone is, and it's hard, I know when we're in a really kind of urban concrete place that's very built and built environment. I would say connect to nature for yourself because all of this good work in the world, that's outer work begins with that inner work. I mean, it's people who have done their inner work that are doing that, that good outer work, whatever their passion or commitment is activists, you know, folks doing social justice work. Um, all of that, I think needs to start with an intimate connection with mother earth, because that's ultimately who we need to be connected to in order to do uh, good in the world in order to live, you know, Bamansawin. And I take that advice myself. Um, you know, that I will go for days where I'm in the house and in the car and driving and, and, and not really walking on the earth. Uh, my colleague talks about walking barefoot on the earth. The elders talk about that. And so if it is having a cup of tea, particularly Chinese and Japanese tea, because you can learn their history. You can learn about Camellia sinensis as a gift. It is the plant that chose us. It's a gift from our relatives in the East. So we do Gung Fu Cha, uh, which is a tea service taught to us, my husband and I, Sly, through Chinese and Japanese tea masters who have said, go teach people about tea. So it's not appropriation. And, and we've studied and understand the chi of the tea and come from a very spiritual place. And so I've led tea ceremonies for the United Nations, for all of our funders in our virtual teaching lodge. And I led one last week and I just got an email this morning about someone who was experiencing grief. And he said he cried through the whole tea ceremony because we do it in silence. So you're pouring the water and we use uh, uh, different teas each time, but one of them is pu'er. Um, and pu'er is, is a beautiful old fermented tea. And we often use old growth because it's, it's like a secular spiritual practice. You know, it's not necessarily any religion. And so, so people from all different backgrounds can drink tea. But if you really meditate on it and you take the time, you can elevate it to ceremony and it involves fire and water. So fire is the sun and that's Nemishomiskizis, grandfather's son. And then the water is Nokomistabikizis, the moon. And so we often talk about the medicine of polarities. And instead of that binary thinking that's going to dismiss or destroy one or pick one or the other, the greatest mushkiki medicine is in the polarities, that space in between. So too much fire will uh, evaporate the water. Too much water will put out a fire. So in the tea ceremony, you can get teachings about the sky, the sun, the earth, mother earth, and then nibish, which is water. 
uh, Nibe, water. The tea ceremony brings in so many indigenous teachings. So people have called it an indigenous tea ceremony when I do it. I think it's indigenous because I'm indigenous in doing that ceremony, but it really does bring in a uh, uh, concept of cultural fluency, which is studying with um, Chinese and Japanese tea masters so that we teach about tea the right way. And it, it helps people shift consciousness. And the Japanese, when they have a tea house, they talk about brushing off the dust of the world because it used to be very dusty and give you a hot towel. And I love that concept. So we, we are actually doing a workshop coming up where we're sending everybody a, a, a white cloth so that they can brush them, wipe themselves off before we come on to like at together as we're on Zoom. That's going to be part of our daily practice. So those are the types of things that I would say uh, for people to just realize that you can connect to a thousand-year-old old growth puer tree, connect to Mother Earth, you know, a thousand years ago, uh, and really be appreciative of that water. Uh, we're in our culture, the men are fire keepers and the women are water keepers. And so we protect and speak for water and pray to water and do water ceremonies. Men are fire keepers. My husband's a fire keeper. So that's how you can elevate. Uh, I know other cultures talk about Zen. That's how you can bring some Zen or elevate really common everyday things to ceremony, especially if that's not your culture and you don't want to appropriate, but appreciate the teachings of those ceremonies. My deepest thanks go to Melanie for taking the time to talk with me and talking us through the deep work she's carrying out in the field of relational systems thinking. If you'd like to learn more about Melanie's work, I'll include a link to the journal paper we discussed in the show notes. And you can also find out more about the Turtle Island Institute at turtleislandinstitute.ca. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more episodes and interviews exploring the question of what it means to be a good person in today's world, then please consider hitting the subscribe button. And if you have time and liked what you heard, then I would love you to leave a review and share with your friends. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at any time. It's sarah at howtobegood.co.uk. And I would love to hear from you. Thank you.